0: and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia from the committee behind the festival and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Kate de Goldie and Susan Paris. Susan Paris and Kate de Goldie curate fresh writing and illustration from some of New Zealand's top talent. Skinny Dip is an anthology of 36 school-inspired poems from 24 New Zealand poets. They reflect everyday experiences of Kiwi kids, from knits and crushes to rainy day lunchtimes through a range of poetic forms. Learn what inspires these champions of young writers and how they push boundaries to create bespoke books for a new generation. The 2023 Marlborough Book Festival will be from July 21 to 23, for more details, head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz For now, please enjoy Kate de Goldie and Susan Paris in conversation at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival.
1: ...3, which is coming out in September. We've got a slideshow, audio visuals. So, let's go. Um, Susan and I have known each other for 25 years at least, yeah. Um, We've worked together earlier because um, Susan was providing children's book reviews for um, a small magazine I was editing for the Book Council, Now Read New Zealand. So we met that way and we we would meet regularly for a drink and talk a lot about children's literature, which we were both um, devoted to and um, had firm opinions on, and... Um, so our friendship sort of developed over many years and in 2015 we decided because of various confluences in the publishing world um, that there needed to be an injection of some really good material for children's read- uh, children reading particularly middle readers between about the ages of 9 and 13 because of publishing's meltdown the closing down of some children's publishing lists Um, the ubiquity of series books, which have their place in a reading life, but, you know, aren't the whole whole story, we decided that one of the things that was missing from the publishing um, spectrum was what used to be around a lot more, those intermediary publications like miscellanies or magazines for children. I mean, New Zealand's had various of them over the years. There's been many overseas. They just weren't around anymore. And those publications filled... Um, need for two um, bodies of people, the readers, short pieces often, you know, things in different forms, but also for new writers. There There had become almost no place that new writers could publish except in the school journal, New Writers for Children. And the school journal, I might say, has been the publication that has kept New Zealand writing for children alive over 50 years when trade publishing hasn't been working quite as well as it might. But we both remembered um, the annuals from our childhoods. How many here remember? Yes, yes. usually it's people over about 45 who remember them. <laughs> um, and we, I mean, I'd certainly known them well, and Susan knew them too. And what we liked about them was that they um, were miscellanies that provided Um, every kind of reading form, and plus um, illustration, visual stories. We also remembered the Puffin Annual from um, the early 70s. There were two of them that were published, and they were fantastic. So we set out, not knowing at all what we were um, letting ourselves in for, and published Annual 1, and that was in 2016. And then Annual 2 a year later, which almost killed us, and then we decided to have a rest, but also expand what we were doing, because we also recognised that lots of new writers, really good writers for children, were finding it hard to break into print, into publishing. And it was quite difficult to get challenging and unusual work published. So um, we decided to ask writers that we knew who were really good um, if they would like to work with us and we would mentor them to publication. So in the interim, we have published a fantastic children's novel called Hazel and the Snails, by Nan Blanchard, a Wellington writer. A prize-winning, unusual text called Tumeki. Tumeki? Hashtag Tumiki. That's meke. right, hashtag Tumeki. which is um, a... F- um, it defies description. It does defy description, that's why I was going eh-eh. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's a story about a community in a city who decide to um, plan... A Celebration for Waitangi Day and the story is told through every kind of medium you can imagine, visual and written. Um, And that won um, Best New Book at the Children's Book
2: Awards. Yeah, and I'd also like to interrupt and say it was a design nightmare. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's another whole story. We'll let you know about that. Um, And then we published a book by Damien Wilkins who has no difficulty getting published but offered us his um, debut young adult novel which won the Young Adult um, Novel of the Year at the Children's Book Awards as well. But um, what I I want to do is um, ask Susan a few questions about the relationship between our publishing enterprises and what she does at the school journal because they are actually intimately connected. Our publishing wouldn't have happened without Susan and it wouldn't have happened without the existence of the school journal. So, Susan, you have been um, uh, editing parts three and four of the school school journal Mm -hmm. for 15 years. And before that, you were an editor at um, Learning Media? Yeah, working in the international team. Yeah. So how many of you know the school journal? I mean, any teachers here will know it, of course, but most people knew it in their school life. Um, It has been the sort of, um, the publication, the educational publication for more than 100 years.
2: What is it now, 125? Um, I, it, was, it began in 1907. Yep, okay. So, um,
1: and for a long time, I mean, it's had many evolutions. And if any of you have, haven't have read A Nest of Singing Birds by Gregory O'Brien, which is about the school journal, it's a fantastic read. And he charts the evolutions of the school journal and, and our cultural evolutions over the last hundred years. But when you came into it, Susan, it was... Um, the editors basically brought together every publication from a slush pile. Would you say? Ooh, not uh, quite. Okay,
2: yeah. <laughs> that's why she. I was she trying needs to, to avoid talk. the term slush pile. Yeah. Um, it was uh, unsolicited content. Yeah. Much much better term. <laughs> a slush pile. Yeah, I didn't mean to demean that content. <laughs> yeah. Um, y- yeah. So there was it was a kind of a hazy period where a, a transition probably needed to occur mm-hmm. because all the material would just come in and there was a project manager who would assign the manuscripts with a number and then I would be given this pile with numbers and I would read it and then I would have to pull together journals from that pile and it felt very haphazard and uncontrollable you mm-hmm. couldn't you couldn't quite shape something into whatever you had in mind that you were trying to do for that particular journal, which probably didn't change all that much across journals, to be fair. But there was the... We had to... So the journal is used in the classroom to teach across all the seven areas of the curriculum. Mm. And I remember when I had my job interview getting asked like what is it that I would try to do and I remember the non-fiction particularly felt quite weak. This was in about 2006 and this, the journal felt like it was characterised by articles like Room 7 makes a piñata or Room 10 makes a you mm. know mm. patu and uh, it just felt really quite limiting that it wasn't reaching its full potential mm. and also there was a slight leftover sense and I don't know really where it came from that the journal was like a, the word nursery was mm. used which is almost as bad a slush pile mm. where, where writers would be trying out things and learning to become writers, and mm. that never seemed like a really winning formula to
1: me. Mm. Well, kind of un, uh, um, undervaluing the experience of ch- children's reading.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it was. Mm. And, um, and then there was this practical consideration that you uh, were expected to provide feedback because of the whole idea of the um unpublished writers and people just trying it out there was a expectation that you would provide a lot of feedback on why a manuscript wasn't being published and all that just became terribly unsustainable and then um, from a budgeting reason actually someone said right that is it we are now going to commission everything and crazily I had a little bit of a freak out because it should have been everything that I wanted because Mm. right yay we can go and we can just be really really deliberate about the content we're getting and the people that we'll use to write the content and the whole world opened up but I had quite a, a long fearful period of how it was going to work and it took a couple of years to settle in because uh, it, the world felt too open. Yeah,
1: and in that period, you you needed to basically have a little black book of every writer in New Zealand in order to commission work, didn't you? You 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 came to know the work of many writers.
2: I th- I think there was a again like even before the f- the full one hundred percent commissioning was official, I started just sort of quietly working away, approaching a certain writers and um, historians and poets and just trying to get a little bit of something mm. going to get a bit mm. of oxygen in there. And you know, slowly, mm. I slowly, I would always just be alert to who was out there, who was doing what, and um, became quite attached to the idea of working with people who were specialists in the field. Like, so, for example, um, someone like Aroha Harris, who is a Maori historian and watching her work and what she was doing, and thinking, "This is who I would use if we were going to do something about Maori moving to the cities in the mm. 1960s, and mm. so trying to use the skill set that someone could bring, and that worked also with poets and with,
1: mm. with fiction writers. Right. So as I it, Susan then pioneered: Sorry, just a um, really Sure. Two um, yep. crucial aspects that then had a flow-on effect for our publishing, you commissioned the work. So um, you your um, MO with the journal still is to work out what article you want, what s- subject area you want. You match it with one of the writers that you've been mm-hmm. working with. And, or, s- or stalking. Yeah, stalking. And you... Um, and you then, knowing what their strengths are, you commission towards those strengths and you give them a parameter, you give them an idea of what you want, but you let them have their head with it so they are still themselves as they're writing it, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, it's, been, it's taken a while to figure out the best way to, to make all that work, but it's a little clearer when it's someone writing an article. But with the fiction... Um, and this was something, an idea that we brought through with us when we were commissioning the annuals. Um, getting someone in that sweet spot where they feel that they've had enough of a direction to be able to begin and not become too distracted by the idea of, you know, what kind of short story am I going to write? And just giving someone a bit of an idea. Um, giving them some um, landmarks. Yeah. yep, and And... And accepting, too, that if someone doesn't like the idea, they will um, push back and use the brief that you have given them to find what it is that they really want to write about. And it turns out
1: writers actually love parameters. So they don't have to think about everything. They've got a a theme that they're following and a a few other things that Susan might require. But then the work becomes their own as they write it. And the other thing that Susan did, which was not new for the annual, but you kind of – sorry, for the journal, but you kind of revived it, the the commissioning for the annual wasn't limited – sorry, journal – wasn't limited to just children's writers. You started commissioning every kind of writer, grown-up ones, as well as um, people who write for children. Yeah. And And that had been done at various stages over the annuals. Oh my god! I'm never going to get right over the journal's history, yeah. but um, but you really went hard with it, which was which really was good.
2: Yeah, I think I just became really curious about um, what would happen if you asked people to write for children who had no experience writing for children, and we've talked about just. I suppose I was resisting the idea that there was a limited gene pool of who you could approach and who was a um, a pure children's writer. Kind yeah, yeah something yeah. along those lines. And that often it's true that a lot of the people that I would commission would say, oh, they would be a little surprised, I guess, about mm. what it was that I wanted and, and how to actually go about it. And I always used to think that that was such a good thing because it meant they were just open to all they weren't working in a box or had any strong mm. ideas about what kids need or want or what was appropriate and that they were finding their way into a piece of writing and taking the reader with mm. them and mm. and the quality of it was very, you know, apparent. And also I think maybe because also they had experience mm. and I was using Practice people who writers. were really good writers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, the, and them not having necessarily any presumptions about what was appropriate for children often produced really interesting material and, yeah. and a kind of material that you didn't often see with you know yeah. right across children's publishing. So I really admired that approach and was fascinated by it and I just knew that Susan would be the right person to um, basically edit the annual and we started working together and we've proceeded in that way with the miscellany, which is the annual, and that's – that's the idea that we brought to Skinny Dip as well. And between, I can't even remember where it was in our trajectory, but we, did, we really wanted to publish a book of poetry. We had poems in the annual from Fantastic Poets, but we wanted a book for that reading age group. And um, what did we we first of all thought that we might ask one writer to do a book of poems around a theme, And then how did it evolve from there? I think
2: that suddenly started to feel like a really bad idea. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Quite demanding for the writer. And then which one? And So anyway, we somehow got ourselves to the point where we thought, oh, no, this can be a miscellany of voices as well. It can be a chorus of poets, but we'll have the book organised around a theme. And I think it was you who said, let's use the theme of school, um, which, of course... um, has, you know, uh, never-ending possibilities because there's so many aspects of school life or home life that's adjacent to school. And we set about it. And um, as a, as I remember it, it was a, um extremely attractive um, operation between
2: us. We would... <laughs> tell everyone how we did it. Uh, <clears throat> well, Kate was staying in Alexandra for a year and I went down... And I recall that you, the lounge that you had had a big white couch that went that way, and a big white couch that went that way. And you lay out on one, and I lay out on the other. And I had an exercise book and a pencil, mm. and, and we sort of shouted. Things we just at each went other. for it. Yeah,
1: and that's actually how we—that's how we've done the annual. Basically, we um, someone pitches something, and then the other one suggests um, something, and then we keep on building till we've got what we want. And that's pretty much we made a. We made a list of um, all the, I mean, one of the things about New Zealand poetry is that it is um, fabulous, internationally fabulous, not that we need to compare it to the rest of the world, but it has such a huge variety of voices. It's one of the great flourishing forms in New Zealand publishing. So we had a fantastic, I mean, we, we've, we've got, there are enough poets in New Zealand to fill anthologies like this for um, the next 10 years, which is what we plan,
2: and and that was the danger that we yeah. felt too by only working with one poet mm. that um i suppose because i'd worked on the journal and we'd done the annuals mm. the variety was something that we just kept coming back to over and over again and took a lot of reassurance from that mm. that you could and then the the idea of having the school theme mm. meant that um just the the uh, it, all op, all possibilities mm. were open yeah. because school can be, has so many different faces. Mm. And if you were having, I, I can't remember how many writers there we were in Skinny Dip in the end, 20? 20, 23, 23, 23, I think. Or, yeah. So 23 different authors and all them we brainstormed a list of ideas of how we would commission people, what particular I, ways that you could come at with the school year. Mm. I remember I came in pretty strong with school camp, which I yeah. always like to um, hassle Kate with. Yeah, She's like, not, not school camp again.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it comes up all the time, a, a story around school camp or a game or a um, poem. But we also, um, we really wanted to introduce the notion. I, in fact, I, I'm going to backtrack here because we, you, I want to ask you, Susan, why you thought it was important that there was a, an anthology devoted to poetry only. Why Why did we do it? What, what do we think was not there? I,
2: I think it was honestly just simply because when we looked around for poetry for children that was happening here now, mm. there was pretty much nothing.
1: Except in the school journal. Except
2: in the school journal. And it just seemed like a shocking <laughs> omission, basically. Mm. It just didn't add up that we... Everyone accepts that poetry for adults is, um, you know, who would want to be without it. Yeah, it's a necessary nourishment in the literary
1: um, spectrum,
2: yeah. And um, it just didn't really exist. We could find there was a, a poetry book called um, Poems for Young New Zealanders, which mm. I think was a collection of poetry by James K. Baxter, which I found from the late 70s. There was, mm, I think, These Islands, which was a New Zealand Mm. publication from the 1970s as well. Mm, mm. Um, There was a book of poetry by Peter Bland that his son had pulled together, published in the early, late 90s perhaps. Mm. And then other than that, just kind of silence. Yeah, and
1: um, apart from the solo poets' publications, the anthologies were already extant work, work pulled from poets' writing lives. So we wanted new work and new voices. And the other thing that we really wanted was to display poetry in different poetical forms. So everyone at school knows about the haiku and the acrostic, um, but we wanted to blow it wide open and introduce kind of difficult but fascinating forms like the pantomime Sonnet, the uh, rondelle. the rondeau, yeah, the hardest of all. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a good story. Um, so, so there were three things: new work commissioned around a theme, and featuring different poetic forms, which have their own rules and organisational um, uh, rationales. But just to go back a little bit further, than that Susan, I mean, you, you, you actually. Um, had a kind of an immersion in poetry as a young child that is really only there for people who have done speech and drama. Yeah. So can you tell us about that? Because
2: I didn't know this about Susan until quite late in the piece. Uh, Yes. So when I was about seven or eight, when I probably should have been um, taught to play netball or hockey, um, my parents sent me along to speech and drama lessons and I don't really know why they did it um we weren't from a like it wasn't a particularly bookish house or I think maybe the the teacher Mrs Hills lived down the road and mum figured out I could bike myself to my speech lessons on a Saturday morning when everyone else was going to netball and hockey and and she didn't need to take me. and she didn't want to take me (laughs) right and um so, on a Saturday morning, I would bike myself off to speech and drama lessons, and there was this really beautiful woman called yes mrs Hills. and there was four or five of us, and we were basically nerds mm. and um we would spend a couple of hours in her company and with one another and the it was kind of organised by the year because I don't know if anyone else did this when they were a kid, but there would be the competitions in the May school holidays and then there would be an exam nearer the end of the year. So you would spend the first half of the year getting ready for the competitions and the second half of the year getting ready for the exam. And there was um, – we used to do Trinity College mm. and uh, someone would be flowing out from England – and would sit in a little room, and we would all go in and say our poems, and you know,
1: yeah, it was a kind of weirdly imperial colonial. It was very
2: kind of- strange, and I swear that the examiners would just wince at our New Zealand accents. <laughs> it was not, not a very positive experience. Mm. But what was really, I mean, I think it was just those couple of hours learning to. Um, read a poem and learning to like the aim always was to recite the poem. and I, picking up skills that i didn't realize at the time that when you when you have to stand and perform a poem in front of either you know at the competitions or at mm. an exam, you engage with it in a different way and you really slow down and you concentrate on your phrasing and your presentation and you start to really think about what it is that you're saying and then just slowly by stealth, um, I just came to love the voices of the poets and the things that the poems were about and just that it was possible to spend a Saturday morning with three or four other kids and Mrs Hills mm. reading poems and going through, she'd have these manila folders and we would sort of scrap about who got to do what poem because you had to share them out. And,
1: and in that process, you also, without realising it, and this is what we do when we read, um, ingested poetical techniques
2: You mean what the poet is actually doing on the page? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Hugely
1: important, but it didn't feel like a lesson. It didn't feel like a lesson.
2: And because you were also memorising the poems, they would um, stay with you, like they were just in your head and you would be biking home from your speech and drama lesson and the words of the poem were just kind of scrolling through as you were – I was always memorising a poem for one thing or another. Which means that if you want to press the – Performing
1: monkey button occasionally for your own <laughs> entertainment. You can say to Susan, "Could you please do that, 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 that Colonel Butter? Can you just say that now?"
2: uh, uh yeah. Kate enjoys this one. I don't do. You, there's a part called Ch- Charles Causley. A lot of the parts were from England, and there was one called um, Colonel Fazakly Butterworth, Toast, bought an old castle complete with the ghost. But someone or other forgot to declare to Colonel Fazak that the spectre was there. And we just go on and on and on like this. And the rhythm and the rhyme of it really Mm. lodged. But we also did a lot of um, – no, we did do some New Zealand poets. So Mm. As Mm. we got older, there was uh, Fleur Adcock and Ruth Dulles. And Mm. um, how else did we do? Well, the the big one,
1: the one that you thought was – completely marvellous
2: oh the big one there was one particular um one particular poem that was hot property at um competitions time and it was called last run and it was about a mustering dog who fell off a cliff and broke his leg and um someone knows it Fantastic. He fell over a cliff and broke his leg, just a mustering dog, and he looked at me there on the hill. Anyway, and then the last lines are, Any more sheep to head, boss, give me a run. But he'd never head sheep anymore. His day was done. He thought it was fun when I lifted my gun. And we just all thought that was just… Electrifying. It was electrifying. And it was, yeah, as mm. I say, hot property to um, do its speech at the competition time mm. because um, we just thought the pathos of it was, you know, not that we had that word. Mm. And in fact, I, I reread it recently and, and was trying to get my head around quite what the attraction was. Mm, mm. And, I, and actually the poem was written by um, someone from Molesworth Station who was a musterer and probably we were responding to the the lived experience and the simplicity of mm, the poem, mm. and there was this, um, I don't know, truthfulness in there. That mm, mm. yeah. Anyway, so that was I'm amazed that someone else knows that poem. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: reason why I wanted Susan to s- s- mention this is that you know the reading and the fun of the experience, and the sort of nurturing that you got from that um speech yeah. teacher meant that, as you say, by stealth, poetry entered your reading life and language released from narrative, untethered to narrative, just pure language, plastic and fantastic, doing its thing,
2: became a normal part of your reading life. And I think also it um, taught a certain kind of patience and a trust with poetry that eventually – I, Bill. I was listening to something, uh, an interview with Bill Manhire recently, and he was talking about a poem being a prolonged hesitation between sound and sense, and there's this constant interplay between the two. And it's almost like the meaning of a poem will come into a fo- into focus for a little bit and then kind of drift off and come back to you. And some poems eventually land mm. on the emphasis on the sound, mm. and others on the sense, and um, I think that was something we learnt to become comfortable with, like mm. not always quite knowing, like obviously the, the um, sheepdog being shot was a pretty clear ending mm. and pretty clear what was going on. Mm. But there were many poems that we worked with and, and learnt where it was about something else.
1: And you learnt to live with that uncertainty yeah. and enjoy it on a language level initially yes. and a, a yeah. sonic level. And I suppose what we felt about poetry not being in the bloodstream of, you know, all the time of young people in New Zealand, um, you know, that's a major loss because it is teaching a number of things and one of them is patience with reading. Mm. Not everything needs to be understood immediately. Mm. And I think if we, had, um, if we had one kind of submission statement, it is that idea that we need to learn how to read and be patient about sense, and it's an important thing for children. And we know that that's not happening a lot these days, but just because of the world that we live in. So, um,
2: we, we can. Uh, yes. Oh, actually, there was one other thing I was going to say about that. Actually, like, I um, when my uh, when my children were born, I spent a lot of time like like many. Hours every week reading mm. to them, and it was reinforced again mm. to me. Um, my sister gave me when um, Jean was born the Opie rhyme book, mm. and that was something we read over and over to both our kids. And I but can saw I just say this is June Opie and her Iona. We
1: decided, sorry, Iona, not June Opie. No, June Opie was in the Iron Lung, <laughs> yeah, Iona, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, not poetry. A very famous pair of
2: language yeah. ethnologists, weren't they? Anyway, yeah. yeah, from England. And, and she she talked about. I actually read the um, preface to the book the other day, and she talked about how children are hardwired for mm. to, to the sound. Mm. And it, um, anyway, we would read this book to our kids, and by the time Jean was about two and a half, she could recite. All this—it was a lot of it was mm, nonsense, mm, mm, as nursery rhymes mm, often are, mm. and it made me realise that just there was some kind of alchemy going on, and I think she may have even performed it for you once. It was there yeah, was d- one that I, mean, I remember in particular. And it went away down east, away down west, away down Alabama, the only girl that I loved best. Her name was Susanna. We took her to the ball one night and set her down to supper. The table fell, and she fell too and Do you know this put, mm. f- put her nose in the butter, the butter, the butter, the holy margarine, two black eyes and a belly no- uh, and a jelly nose, and the rest all painted green. You anyway, know she would just go on and on and on <laughs> saying this, and it just made n- she was. Two and a half. It made absolutely no sense, but it was the the sound the and the s- sonic pleasure, yeah, yeah,
1: and the feel on the tongue, yeah. yeah. And if 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 we were drunk enough, we'd get Jean, who's actually here, to recite it. But that would be awful for her. <laughs> um, yeah. My guest this evening, Steve Brawny, is one of New Zealand's
2: best known journalists and authors. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022. As an author, uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this. And I kid you not, by the way, uh, Blenheim, and I think I've been to I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball. But uh, of all of them, uh, I've been here twice before, and this is the best. This is actually the best. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's just the vibe of it. It's really great. It's really welcoming and friendly. I had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. I s- he said, oh, uh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to Blenheim for the literary festival, the books festival. And he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go.
1: So, so... All this, and I love poetry, and I, I, often Susan can articulate things that I haven't quite put into words, and the whole business is about waiting for sense. is something that I've always liked about poetry as well, Live, living with uncertainty but enjoying it on a language level. So this is kind of behind what we were doing with Skinny Dip, but we also wanted um, it to be a lively publication in the classroom as well as in homes. I wonder, Susan, um, maybe um, you could give everyone a taste of what were you going to say of of the first poem
2: well yeah I think actually a very perfect example of um sense hovering and um being fleeting is in a poem that was in skinny dip called pot plant and I'm actually going to resist there was a brief for the author for this but I'm going to resist telling everyone um, so this is by Rata Gordon and it is a pantoum and I won't go into the details of pantoums but suffice Excellent to say Excellent notes it's about form at the back of the book.
0: Yeah.
2: Something small and hot went boom. Through silky stars outspun earth, cells formed membranes, blue-green bloom, forest towered, fluff gave birth. Through milky stars outspun earth, remember when the asteroid hit? Then forest flowered, apes gave birth. Over wastelands, new life knit. Remember when the asteroid hit? Then wolves changed rivers. Whales weaved over deep sands, new life knit. Later came these plastic flowers. Dams changed rivers, highways weaved. Cells formed membranes, fungi bloomed. Later came these plastic leaves. Something small and hot went boom. And it has the most beautiful music. I'm sure I didn't do it justice. Um, And that poem, um, so we were talking about the school year and what happens, and one of the things that happens in school is learning about stuff. And um, I remember one night having a conversation about the Big Bang And, um, again, going back to Jean, she was – I remember her saying, I hate the Big Bang because she just couldn't understand it. And we really liked that idea. Um, And so Rata's brief was to write about the Big Bang. And when you know that and you revisit the poem – Eventually, there's these little pieces of information that you can um, see it coming into focus. And what's that, actually yeah, things yeah. start to
1: cohere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But first of all, as you say, it's music. Yeah. yeah. So that was going on in the anthology. It was super fun making up the um, or dreaming up the different subjects that we wanted people to address. Um, we we needed to have across the um, anthology different moods, different voices, we needed to, depending on the age of the poets, some of them were a long way from school, so one of the ways around that was to make sure that they didn't have to address absolutely contemporary matters about school, but perennials, that we did have a... We it, was,
2: it was surprising how you could come up with ideas yeah. that you didn't have to be just out of school no. to make it work. Like the Big Bang is yeah. a good example, right? Yeah. Subject
1: matter. Yeah. But um, um, separate to that, but aligned, there's a, there's a poem in there about um, YouTube school um, by um, Co- uh, um, Kautaku. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's very contemporary, obviously. But in another way, it's speaking to the fact that we're always learning through distraction in our own pathways. So there's a lot going on in the um, book. It's absolutely full. Susan was just saying yesterday rather regretfully, I think we could have done with about six more poems. I don't know how you hit on six. but <laughs>
2: uh-huh, <I> just- <laughs> yeah. um, Susan? Um, Actually, maybe another thing to say about the book too is like it's divided into school terms. So... Um, the variety felt like it needed to be harnessed and perhaps given a little bit of sense. So then we hit on the idea that, um, you know, term one, two, three, four, each one has its own um, recurring events, um, buying school stationery in the first term, um, new teachers, social, social stuff being sorted out in the classroom, playing cricket or summer sports and then the second term um second and third terms we the um, winter terms we the winter terms Mm. there is a there's a poem by Lindley edmeads about being stuck in the classroom over a rainy lunchtime um there is in the third term my school camp poem found its way which i was very pleased about my resistance broke down yeah so um that worked quite well like as well as the different forms and the different mm. voices um and all the different experiences of school, having that arc and mm. shape was i think something that settled it, into it a, yeah. yeah settled it into a shape that helped it make sense and in fact the there's actually term the titles term one, two, three, four are throughout the book mm. um
1: and then there's things random things that have got nothing really to do with the school year,
2: like the class pet. Uh-huh. Do you want to read that one? Oh, I do. I didn't mark that one, actually. This one um, also has a slight mystery about it. So um, I remember seeing a. often a classroom has an empty tank, and um, there was one in Because the, the fish has died. Bec- yeah, or whatever's going on. Yeah, or well, someone hasn't um, had time to go buy something to put in it. Um, so Oscar Upperton, who is a, a young uh, Wellington-based poet, we asked him to write a series of Tanker. and um, his uh, his theme was uh, I think we just said class pet, mm. or maybe class frogs. We're a bit obsessed with frogs at the moment. Yeah. And he wrote a poem called Eulogy for the, Cl- for the Class Frog. This is a sad day. Is that what I meant to say? Guess she was okay. Now she's gone away. Hooray? Sorry, can't hide my delight. I know you're all quite sad, but can I be forthright? Her tongue gave me frights, flicking, flying in the night. It's not a big secret why today I won't cry. Why this is no sad goodbye. The class frog and I never did see eye to eye because I am the class fly. (laughs) That's good. eh? Yeah, we had no idea he was going to write a poem from the perspective of a fly. And and I mean
1: and that's one of the great um, blessings of commissioning, and especially when you trust your people. you know that they will surprise you as well. So we're kind of learning. He that.
2: really got away on us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. he's done that more than once. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I would like to read um, one of my favourite ones, which is um, by, oddly enough, Oscar's father, Tim Upperton.
2: Oh, uh, uh, yeah. But it, actually, is it? Be- it is, it is. But the father-son before-
1: duo. Actually, before we do that, and I'm going to um, ask for questions in a minute. Susan, d- um, before we do that, why don't you quickly read... No, let's leave that. Why don't you quickly read Tim's initial poem for us in the annual because it's such a beautiful um, example of um, a commission becoming more than the sum of its parts. Have you, have you got it available?
2: Yeah, it's on my phone, which is suddenly feeling super dangerous. Okay, I'll
1: read that then um, and I can find no, it.
2: No, no, I'll fuss around and try and find it while you do. You want to okay. read the school caretaker one? I don't do. You? I know because
1: um, I, I really love. I really love the idea of the school caretaker who's an absolutely crucial part of school but is often sort of on the edges. Kids have sort of glancing relationships with the school caretaker. They're a real presence but they're kind of a recessive presence. And so we asked Tim to, um, to write about the school caretaker using the form of a villanelle which, like the pantoum, has repeating lines coming back at different points. I get up at dawn. One of those early wakers. At the school by six, I work unseen, which is how I like it. What I make is soon unmade. I guess my mistake is I take care. The ground's so neat, tidy and green. But here they come, the troublemakers. They trample all over my fine green acres. The enamel in the toilets gleams. It's clean, but not for long. Not with these jokers. I come from a long line of caretakers. The kids are all right. They're okay. I mean, when I forget where the spade or the rake is, they'll find it for me. On my birthday, a cake is prevent- presented by the food tech class in the school canteen. It's sometimes a flop, but I thank the bakers. And the cake has green icing. And for my sake, a tiny lawn mower. And a tiny seated figurine, a bit like me, with its tiny cap, its red windbreaker. They know I care. I'm the school caretaker. Have we got time for um, the early one, or do you want oh, oh, no, I have want...
2: got a better idea. Actually, okay, cool. yeah, this,
1: um, is, this usually happens. By the way, I'll suggest oh. it, and she's always right.
2: Oh, that's so mean. <laughs> um, um... James Brown is someone who we, um, really, really love working with and go back to many, many times. He is very, um, competent with form. He teaches creative writing. You know, he absolutely knows what he's doing. And, um, but he also has an anarchic side. Oh, yeah. And so he has become our go to, um, our go to man for a piece of craziness. And he is in, um, Skinny Dip writing an acrostic poem and he is also in the um the annual, the third annual is coming out uh in September. And this here is a great example of what he does and um why we love him. So his his brief we Kate had the Encyclopedia Britannica, the V. Only the volume the v, v, that's the only one I could salvage. And so we gave it to um, James and said, um, can you go to the vegetable page, which is here on the left, and can you write us a poem using only those words? It's kind of like a found poem. Um, and these highlighted sections, so this is the page from the Encyclopedia Britannica. These highlighted sections are the words that he put together, and in that order, running order, and this is what he came up with on the right, vegetable culture, of the more important vegetables all except the rutabaga have been cultivated from early civilizations some have been changed some have been so changed that their wild ancestors can no longer be identified with certainty musk melon is intolerant at maturity okra interacts with onions and may alter the ratio of male to female horses <laughs> best line <laughs> there are no reliable estimates Cool crops desire sweetness. Cooking renders the plants palatable, but also unintentionally serious. Herbs, insects, pests and rainfall have steadily increased vegetable culture. <laughs> the land is intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this, might
1: be, this might be a good um, time to ask if anyone wants questions, and then we're, we're going to, at the end, give you a little preview of Annual 3. Do you have any questions? Yeah, I wondered if you had any comments on the New Zealand English or literary curriculum at the moment and, for instance, the dearth in New Zealand poetry anthologies. How how much time do we have? (laughs) We could talk for half a day about our feelings about that. Susan's Uh, a little bit compromised by serving the curriculum through the school journal. You've
2: got anything to say, Susan? Um, do you mean the, the, curic- like, the curriculum refresh? And I actually no,
1: don't... well, I'm thinking of the older one. I haven't mm. seen the re- refresh, but um, yes, the curriculum for teaching children about... I'll just say one thing. Think. No, you go. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> I, I think um, I'm... I, I kind of hate bagging the curriculum, but I feel very frustrated by it. Um, and I think um, the sort of... Um, Capaciousness of the ideas means that um, you have to be a really inventive teacher, and you have to think all the time about how to work within the curriculum. But there's a whole lot of really basic things that you can also leave out if you don't want to do them. And poetry is one of them. And I think I think, and we've talked about this a lot. You know, lots of people don't read poetry, so it's really hard to teach it if you don't if you're not familiar with it. Um, You have to practice it. It's like learning a musical instrument. You know, you have to get used to it and familiar with it and comfortable. And it can be a mark. When I, when I teach creative writing, I only use poetry to, um, you know, because it's got all the writing techniques in the world and it's got its whole own universe of language. But we understand how, how um, confronting it can be for teachers and we understand why they
2: don't do it. Is that what you're meaning, kind of the, the openness and the lack of support in the curriculum?
1: Well, it was my experience that they didn't. There was no requirement to teach poetry, and so they yeah. didn't yeah. ever. Yeah, which and is I a, wondered
2: if that had contributed to,
1: and we know the that. fact that there's no demand for New Zealand anthologies of children's poetry I mean, for I mean, 25
2: years, mm. or whatever. That's why we did Skinny Dip, you yeah. Know? yeah. And it's not it seemed like it's such a, a yeah a crazy omission. Mm. Yeah, it, there's actually quite good teacher notes to go with Skinny Dip. Actually, I was pre online The other day on our website. They are. And there's also, Susan wrote the, um,
1: the, um, the notes about form at the back of the book, and they are just a treat. Really, really wonderful. And, they, you know, I believe they would just blow open poetry's possibilities for teachers, so have a go. Any other questions? I've actually got two questions. Yeah. Susan, first of all, how much feedback do you get
2: on the journal from schools and school age kids, we we are constantly seeking it out because we're desperate to hear what teachers want. And you know, there's just so much talk at the moment about the pressure on teachers and how impossible it is to be all the things that they have to be. And so, and the journal takes up a lot of budget, like it's the only free resource that is constantly provided into schools, paid for by the Ministry of Education mm-hmm. and we want to be careful that that money is spent exactly, in exactly the way that teachers would want it to be spent um, and yeah, we we do seek out, and we do seek out a lot of feedback on the journal and actually we're more interested, I mean, in the And the criticisms of it actually and not necessarily what it's doing well, but the things that are missing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially because it's used to teach across the curriculum, there's a lot of um, expectation from it Mm. as well. The other question for you both, and I know it's a huge topic, but why did
1: comics so completely die? Oh. Hmm. Um. They haven't. They haven't. No, look, they're in the annuals. Yes. Oh. Yeah, but they, they're not in the way
2: we used to get one a week, you know, through the mail. We actually, in- we have, they are coming back. Comics. Yeah. They yeah. yeah. And oh. they're in the school journal.
1: Sort of like vinyl, you know. Great. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. B-
2: because of the, um, you know, wanting to support reluctant readers and ensuring that those kids are um, getting what they need, Comics and are coming into their own because of the visual literacy yeah. and the it's a different way of reading a text and getting information there's actually less so this is actually in the this isn't in the journal but this is sort of like what is happening in the journal where there's just a whole lot less text on the page yeah. and there's something going on between what you're seeing and what you're reading and and oh, in a way that they didn't die, they went
1: into what we, what is now called graphic fiction. So that is actually a huge stream in publishing for young people. And there's some really, really great um, graphic fiction or comic books for um, the 9 to um, 12 age group. No, um, not Not much here in New Zealand for that age, but we are working with a truly gifted artist
2: and Gavin uh, this guy here too is another example this is the third annual that's coming up it's sort of a it's not a comic or graphic fiction I don't even know what it is but we always feel relatively comfortable with that so it's a story told through pictures this is only one spread of eight and it's done by Gavin Moldy and um, he is, is that who you were thinking of? I was were actually thinking about of Austin.
1: Oh, Austin yeah. too, yeah. Um, have we got Austin? Um, we do have Austin. So, Austin's about 12. No, I think he's about 22, but he's incredibly young and incredibly oh. precocious. And we hope that he will um, finish what will be the first graphic novel for this age group, 9 to 12, in New Zealand. And it's just. So peachy. This yeah. piece
2: is called Holly, and it's about eight pages long. But I was thinking about that. The annual's a hundred and sixty pages long, and I more than like almost forty of them are comics or graphic fiction mm-hmm. or pieces like Gavin, nameless, yeah. genre-defying work. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But this is sort of speaks to um, one of the intentions behind our publishing, which is to try and resuscitate some of those forms that have died off or um, reimagine them in certain ways um, for, you know, our, our times. So um, it's a really good question. Um, and some of it's to do with economics as well. Um, you know, there was a whole industry around weekly comics um, and it just probably television might have changed that. They're much.
2: also quite expensive yeah. to make, like the yeah. printing of them and the, the print specs. Are, mm. uh, yeah, it's not a cheap thing to do. Susan, do you want to flick through,
1: um, just to give you a taster for the annual, and then I think it would be really good if Susan finished the session in two minutes by reading the final um, p- final poem. Uh, yeah,
2: so this is just, we thought you guys might be interested in some of the upcoming content in Annual 3. So there was the poem by James Brown, The Vegetable Craziness. And then this poem, was um, it's written by Simone Cahoe, and we asked her to write about being young and going to church. And um, it's called I Should Not Think About Kissing in Church. It's sort of like a prose poem. Uh, there's uh, short stories, which we always have in all of our annuals. Backbone, mm. would we mm. say? Yeah, I think so. Um, the Oh, so one of the graphic pieces is an adaptation of The Champion by Morris G. Classic C- comic? Classic New Zealand. We we sort of did get it into our heads that each time we would do an annual, we would adapt a classic New Zealand novel that was out of print and um, <laughs> make a rod for our own backs. <laughs> it's a huge, say. huge
1: enterprise. Um,
2: and there is the you know the Gavin Mouldy piece. Um We've dabbled explicitly in satire this year and named it as satire on the contents page. And this is um, how would we describe this piece? Um, It's (laughs) a um,
1: homage, an homage to um, the the lost women, um, the lost great women of New Zealand history who may or may not have existed, but they probably didn't exist, like Alison Espiner. Yeah, a librarian, espionage agent.
2: Um, another, an, another idea that we've carried through from all the annuals. Are, um, I, I guess stories told through. It's not quite. Actually, this is a, a like dictionary invented mm. dictionary idea. So in the in the first annual, Kirsten McDougall wrote a dictionary of words that you need for a car trip when you're stuck with your family in a small space for a long period of time and this one was the words that you need when you find yourself unwell and stuck at home it's very it was this is the cutest thing we've ever done i said to Kay, oh my god we've done cute
1: it's and, and um there's very, a lot of examples of um narratives and untraditional forms in the annual um we, we, we like to play with the idea of story in different ways
2: uh, this is a piece, uh, a, a more serious piece about um, in v- climate change, basically. And the opening wolf is quite dire, but it gets better after this. And uh, in the in the second annual, we did something a whole lot more feckless, like how to be a rock star. Mm. So we thought we should change it up and um, tackle have some moral seriousness, (laughs) have some moral seriousness, and then flash nonfiction. um, Also something that we like to revisit, and we and which is great for teaching
1: creative writing in schools. Flash nonfiction.
2: So this is uh, Victor Roger, and he he wrote a poem in Skinny Dip. So this is like a great example of how it all is just one big happy family. He Mm. wrote a poem in Skinny Dip about his grandmother. (laughs) Bringing Kentucky Fried Chicken to school and at lunchtime, and how his um, his friends were just blown away. And um, we, picked, it was just a passing comment, but I just thought that was gold. And so he's written this this beautiful piece about his grandmother, who was Scottish, who was obsessed with her grandchildren going hungry and feeding them up after school, Kentucky Fried Chicken at lunchtime, and then um, cream buns. In the evening, um, note a glass amazing. of wine, uh, and a game school cam. I know
1: it's everywhere. <laughs> it's a very funny game which Susan wrote. So, so it's a story, a narrative as a board game, and uh, they are played yes. and enjoyed. I they think we
2: <laughs> played and enjoyed, and uh, spot similarities. Historic photographs, which is another thing we like to do, um, just r- randomly find images that we think will really arrest um, kids. From the Turnbull Library and, uh, and other photographers. A song by Troy Kingi, Knitting, um, to go uh, – this was – I was I think she might have left – a follow-up from the knitted in- intestinal tract. Uh, this is a knitted brain, which is that knitted moment brains. at home. Uh, foraging, and a recipe follows this.
1: Uh, uh, Some of you may know the Biscuits and Slices Titao. Well, it was derived from a page like this in the second annual, and it has actually turned out to be one of our major fundraisers for publishing. It just goes and goes and goes. So we thought we'd have a second bite at the cherry. They say you
2: can't dip your foot in the same river twice, but we're giving it a crack. (laughs) Yeah. And that's it. That's the cover.
1: So we need to wind up. Um, Susan, I think a, a really nice way to end would be to read Anahera's Okay final yep. part. So this
2: is um, from Skinny Dip, and I was talking before uh, that the, the collection is shaped around the school year and lots of schools um, on the last day of the year have a pora porto aki to farewell students who are moving on to intermediate or high school. So this was written by Anahera Gildea. And it's in Te reau on one side of the page in English on the other. And it's called The Bell Has Rung. To the guardians, to the elements, this garden of knowledge, this solid ground, and this whānau that has raised us, pay attention, here we are. The bell has rung, release us. Strengthened by your guidance, we take our place in the continuum that stretches into the future and the past. The bell has rung, release us. Soaring to the peak, to the treetop canopy, woven together. The bell has rung, release us, the hopes of this generation expressed in the land. Release us, the path has been cleared, let the wind-dispersed seeds rush forward in all directions. This is the great forest of Tane, Ranganui is above, Papatuanuku is below, this is the breath of life.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. Thank you.
0: Kate. And skinny dippers for sale outside. That was Kate DeGoldie and Susan Paris in conversation at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlborabookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.